nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, we're starting the new year off with an activist special. First with the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant having shut down forever as of December 29th, we bring you an audio montage of celebrants at the shutdown party. You'll hear from Leslie Sullivan-Sachs, Paul Gunter, and Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear, plus locals who have been on the front lines of the battle for more than 40 years. This is what a victory for our side sounds like. Then we learn about an action that took place just this morning at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratories near San Francisco from Mary Leah Kelly, Executive Director of Tri-Valley Cares. And an activist shout-outs will learn from Sheila Parks exactly why and how to tweet the Pope. All this plus numbnuts of the week, the John Stewart shout-out, and enough nuclear information to choke a slew of Fox News anchors all coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 6th, 2015, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. On December 28th, one of the reactors at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in Ukraine was automatically shut down after a glitch. This was the second halt in operations in recent weeks at the plant in Ukraine's southeast. Zaporizhia is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, and the fifth largest in the world. State nuclear power company Energoatom says the unit was disconnected to prevent internal damage to the generator. It did not give further details, but said radiation in the area was within acceptable limits. However, a recent op-ed news article refers to a hacked conversation that was alleged to have taken place between two Ukrainian officials. According to a transcript sent to Nuclear Hot Seat, An official at the plant said, As soon as you left, journalists flooded us. They are hanging out at the security checkpoint. What am I to say to them? The second man, obviously his boss, responded, Say that it is an electrical short circuit or some other shit like that. But about the reactor, not a word. Blab and I will turn you inside out. In a later conversation, the underling says, We need to evacuate people. Radiation is off the charts, and locals need to be warned. We already started dumping into the water supply from the cooling system. Very soon we will have a second Chernobyl. His boss replies, don't panic. We were told to be quiet. We'll be quiet. The underling replies, do you understand we can no longer keep silent? This is a catastrophe. Here, in a 100-kilometer radius, nothing will be left alive. And according to a Donetsk People's Republic official, considered to be a Russian nationalist rebel group in the Donetsk area of Ukraine, 
reported that radiation levels at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant are 14 times higher than normal and that the radiation spike was caused by a failed attempt to replace Russian-made fuel rods with U.S. components. He said, she said, we'll keep you posted. In a related story, attempts to use nuclear fuel from the U.S. manufacturer Westinghouse inside reactors of the Czech Republic's Soviet-designed Temlin nuclear power plant has repeatedly caused many unexpected problems. Incidents of the same sort also occurred at Hungary's Pax nuclear power plant. In France, according to the head of the French Nuclear Safety Authority, Electricité de France SA, or EDF, the largest generator of nuclear power in the world, is unable to keep up with maintenance needs at aging nuclear reactors in its fleet. State-controlled EDF operates 58 nuclear reactors at 20 nuclear facilities. South Korea is now claiming that North Korea hacked their nuclear power plant, stole the facility's blueprints, and posted them online. And no, this is not another Seth Rogen film. Also in South Korea, 301 villagers in a small town near the Gori nuclear power plant in Busan are suffering from thyroid cancer and have filed a class action suit against the operator of the nuclear plants, the Korea Hydro and Nuclear Power Corporation, or KHNP, to demand compensation. They claim their disease was the result of years of exposure to radiation from the facilities. The plaintiffs all live within a 10-kilometer radius of the nuclear power plants. KHNP, of course, has appealed to a high court, claiming that radioactivity from nuclear plants is irrelevant to thyroid cancer. Meanwhile, over in Japan... The latest survey on possible health impacts from the 2011 triple meltdown at TEPCO's Fukushima facility show that four more children are suspected of suffering from thyroid cancer. The four, who were 6 to 17 years old at the time of the disaster, had been diagnosed as not having the cancer in the first survey that was conducted within three years of the meltdowns. 57 children in the first survey had been confirmed as suffering from thyroid cancer, and 24 others were suspected of having it. Which makes this the perfect segue to... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. Two researchers from John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore recently published a breakthrough crucial study in the journal Science, which states that the reason behind cancer, two-thirds of all cancer cases, is biological bad luck. Yes, that's right. According to oncologist Dr. Bert Vogelstein, and this is a direct quote, when someone gets cancer, immediately people want to know why. And the real reason in many cases is not because you didn't behave well, or were exposed to some bad environmental influence? It's just because that person was unlucky. It's like losing the lottery. Dude, I don't recall anyone buying scratchers in the cancer lottery. Then his partner, biomathematician Christian Tomasetti, chimed in to say that harmful mutations occur for, quote, no particular reason other than randomness, end quote. 
Well, isn't that special? Neither one of these experts, and you can put that word in quotes, bothered to mention the R word, radiation, which has a known, proven side effect of causing cancer. Joseph Mangano, executive director of Radiation and Public Health and a frequent guest on this show, said, this may be the worst research I've ever seen. Two-thirds of cancer cases are biological bad luck when genes mutate randomly and have nothing to do with lifestyles or environment. Gee, does that mean we should move closer to Fukushima? Smoke more cigarettes? No, Joe. It means that we need to find out who funded this lying piece of quote-unquote research and what their ultimate motivation may have been. And that's why you, John Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. In the latest battle of political pronouncements versus scientific reality, the government of Japan said it will declare that all remaining designated radiation hotspots in residential areas in Fukushima Prefecture are safe for residents. Thus, officials have lifted an evacuation advisory for 142 locations in the city of Minamisoma in Fukushima Prefecture. To learn how so-called decontamination work is really another form of manipulating the stats and lying about radiation levels, I reference Ian Thomas Ash's excellent film, A2BC, and you can listen to my interview with him on Nuclear Hot Seat number 178, dated November 18, 2014. And the radiation shell game in Japan continues as they declare that all rice grown in Fukushima passes radiation safety checks for the first time. What they don't mention is the suspicion that high radiation rice is mixed with low radiation rice to average out the total radiation readings. So if you believe that Fukushima rice really is safe from radiation, I have some land adjacent to a uranium mine that I'd like to sell you for a really good price. Here in the U.S., an oil cooling system on the turbine of a southwest Michigan nuclear power plant leaked oil into Lake Michigan for about two months, according to plant officials, and nobody noticed. Oops! Officials with the Cook nuclear plant reported the leak to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission on December 20th and said it had been ongoing from about October 25th. And on December 22nd, the underground of the waste isolation pilot plant in Carlsbad, New Mexico, was evacuated after a portable continuous air monitor alarm was activated. Wiptex said that the alarm was caused by a malfunction in the air monitor and used a second monitor to show that there was no radioactive increase in the air or nearby surfaces. But how do we know which monitor was the accurate one? Yes, I glow in the dark. One mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and beyond is my ebook on what it means to find oneself only one mile from a nuclear reactor meltdown while it's happening. Thrills, chills, and lots of laughs. It's available as an ebook on Amazon Kindle. A pretty terrific read, if I do say so myself, and not all of it is about nuclear. Some of the scariest parts are about nuclear theater. Yes, I Glow in the Dark is available on Amazon Kindle. Now, let's get to those activists. 
This week, you're invited to a party. The victory party held for the New England activists to celebrate the closing of the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant. Nuclear Hot Seat was there, at least by phone. And what follows is an audio montage of voices and stories from a range of attendees. They include Leslie Sullivan Sachs of Safe and Green Campaign, Paul Gunter and Kevin Camps of Beyond Nuclear, who traveled from Maryland to be there on this historic occasion, and people who drove over a 100 miles through a snowstorm to join others in marking this historic event. There is nothing like a New England activist. Give a listen. This is Leslie Sullivan Sachs and Ann Darling. I live in Brattleboro, Vermont, five miles from Vermont Yankee. I live in East Hampton, Vermont, but I used to live in Brattleboro, Vermont, and left because I couldn't stand living so close to the reactor. And I've been working to shut down the nuke since it went up for sale in 2002. I can't remember how long it's been before that, I guess. <laughs> so, and we're with the Safe and Green campaign. Safe, safe and Green. And we are hosting this party tonight. It is a ridiculous snowstorm out there. And awful. it's just awful. And the house is <laughs> in the main hall, we have banners, you know, like 40 years of banners on all of the walls. And then we have a band called Simba that's playing music. They started as the No Nukes Band in 1989 at a No Nukes fundraiser uh, party on the Common in Brattleboro, Vermont. And we kicking off the evening were the Raging Grannies. Oh, and now Randy Keeler has just joined us. Say hi, Randy. Hello, this is Randy Keeler. Tell her where you live. I live in Coleraine, Massachusetts, which is 10 miles from the Vermont Yankee X plant. And how long have you been uh, I started working at Shutdown Vermont Yankee actually not that long ago, maybe only eight years ago. And uh, I've been involved in lots of different things, from town meetings where you get the New England town meeting to pass the resolution to shut it down, which we did in almost every uh, town meeting in northwestern Massachusetts, and you probably heard that we had a what, 12, 13-day walk from January through snowstorms, sleet and ice, 126 miles from Brattleboro, Vermont, to uh, the capital in Montpelier. You know, we've had demonstrations, we've had civil disobedience, we've I've done educational forums, we've had marches, we've had, you know, everything you can imagine. We had meetings, 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 meetings. And you know what? I think it really paid off. <laughs> I really do. They might think that we had nothing to do with their shutting down, but we know that we did, and there are a number of people in Vermont who are quite upset with us because they're sure, they're sure we did. I do want you to know that there are 200 local people here whose names will never be known, done everything from petitions to getting arrested to baking brownies to babysitting so their good friends could get arrested. Hopefully they'll speak for them as well. Okay, here's Taki Wyland. Taki, uh, where do you live? I live in West Hampton. How far are you from the reactor? I am not too far. I'm about 30 miles, so it's a close by. <laughs> Tell them how long you've been working to shut down the line. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I'm now 205 years old. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking with a friend about how we almost never thought this could really come to be, and that it has, that this milestone has occurred that Vermont Yankee 
nuclear reactor is not working anymore. And we are celebrating tonight wildly. And tomorrow, we will go back to saying, got to get to this dry cast storage. Got to keep cleaning it up. Got to close down. Where do we coast down next? Is it Indian Point or is it Plymouth? Plymouth. Yes. All of the above. Hello, Lizzie. This is Kevin. Kevin Campbell Beyond Nuclear. Congratulations, Kevin, on the close Thank down you. of Vermont Yankee. What's it like to be up there and part of this celebration? Oh, it's uh, very inspiring. And, uh, you know, everybody here realizes that there's a lot of work to do, but tonight we're letting our hair down and dancing and having a good time. But there were meetings held before this thing about which reactor next. Is it Fitzpatrick? Is it Indian Point? Is it Pilgrim? You know, Entergy is vulnerable now, so we need to build on this momentum and go after them. And, of course, uh, folks are also talking about the contamination of the Vermont Yankee site that needs to be dealt with the uh, high-level radioactive waste, uh, protecting the school children that are right across the road, and then another elementary school across the Connecticut River in New Hampshire that are very, you know, at risk from even the uh, offloading of the 200 tons of fuel that's in the core right now. There's going to be a radioactive release when they take that lid off and get the waste into the pool. So lots of concerns to address starting, you know, first thing Monday morning. And what does that do in terms of your ability to party down tonight? Oh, I think, uh, you know, folks are having a really good time reminiscing about over 40 years of grassroots activism that led to this victory this week. And, you know, there's a lot of folks here from the Seabrook campaign in New Hampshire, the Clamshell Alliance. So it's just a great celebration of over 40 years of anti-nuclear activism in the Northeast. There's a great slideshow being shown by Harvey Shackman, who's on the board of Citizens Awareness Network, that shows a lot of those images from the Seabrook campaign in the 70s. In fact, Lionel Delavine, the photographer from the 1977 protest, is here with a book called To the Village Square, which is an allusion to Einstein's quote, To the Village Square, America must go to find its voice on atomic energy. And those images are a knockout because we're going back to the early 70s here. One of the successful campaigns up here was the Montague nuclear power plant that was stopped when Sam Lovejoy from the Montague Community Farm, the uh, commune, knocked down the weather tower that was set up to figure out where the radioactivity would blow when the meltdown happened. And he uh, took an axe to the high-tension line, and it nearly took his head off because it flails around like a snake. He hit the ground, and the police showed up, and he was eventually acquitted because there is a right to revolution under the Massachusetts Constitution. It was a Revolutionary War Constitution, and the jury said, nope, he has the right to revolution against tyranny. So there's just such a rich history of anti-nuclear activism in the, in the Northeast. And of the 40 years of struggle against Vermont Yankee, Kevin, how many of those years have you been involved? Well, a funny thing was I was so busy in Michigan with, uh, for example, the Chernobyl Children's Project and also the Great Lakes Nuclear Free Action Camps that I could never make it up here for the action camps that were in the late 90s. So I didn't get plugged in until I went to work for NEARS in 1999. And one of the highlights for me was testifying before the Vermont legislature in January of 2010 after the secret covered-up tritium leaks took place that they lied about under oath to the state. And uh, in the big arrest in uh, 2012, on the first day of the license extension, where 1,500 people marched through Brattleboro and Vernon, 
And altogether, when you added up uh, the Vernon arrests, the White Plains, New York arrests, the Energy Northeast, and the Energy National Headquarters arrests, there was 168 arrests against Entergy on a single day. It was March 22nd of 2012. So it's been an honor and a privilege to plug into just this very dynamic grassroots movement up here. Well, have a dance for me, if you would, please. This I brings will. back This brings back the memories of when we shut down San Onofre, which was only a year ago. And congratulations. I, well, congratulations all around. In the time I've been involved with this movement, which is only three and a half years, we've gone from 104 down to 99. So let's keep the momentum going. Right on. Good talking to you. Good Here's talking Paul Gunther. You. Wonderful. Hey, Libby. Paul, congratulations. Hey, no nukes. No nukes. Let's keep it going. Yeah. We're under 100. Yeah. You know, right now we've got 99 reactors that have operating licenses. There are 8 to 10 reactors that are leaning like uh, dominoes about to fall. Uh, Illinois, Ohio, uh, Michigan, New Jersey. There are no, uh, a number of reactors that uh, they're mostly these single units, these small single units. A number of them are these identical uh, Mark I General Electric boiling water reactors, the, the Fukushima-style reactors that uh, that just closed here in Vermont. You know, this is really a big affirmation, uh, public opposition to nuclear power to uh, affirm a nuclear-free future. This is a particularly um, meaningful moment of celebration for me because I first got started in the anti-nuclear movement at Vermont Yankee, essentially in July of 1976, an affinity group that was involved in opposing a new construction project announced over on the New Hampshire seacoast at Seabrook. We organized a, a wagon trek, a horse-drawn wagon from Winchester, New Hampshire, which is just across the, the river, the Connecticut River from the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant, which was operating at the time, to go from village square to village square to take the message that nuclear power is inherently dangerous, exorbitantly expensive, and forever nuclear waste. And then to take it from an operating nuclear power plant to a proposed construction project, which then on uh, August 1st, we did a mass civil disobedience that essentially kicked off the uh, no-nukes movement in the United States. But the day we left Winchester, New Hampshire, just across the river from Vermont Yankee, I was walking along uh, with this um, horse-drawn wagon, and the Vermont Yankee nuclear power plant had just dumped 80,000 gallons of nuclear waste into the Connecticut River on that very day that we kicked off this campaign. And as, I, as we were canvassing, one house uh, that I walked up to knocked on the door. The woman opened up, and on the television, Behind her was a civil defense announcement that people should not recreate fish in the Connecticut River because Vermont Yankee had just dumped 80,000 gallons of radioactive tritium into the Connecticut River. And I knew right then that this was sort of a, this was a, a real mission statement that um, we were really on the right track. And the wagon itself was a, a mobile puppet show that we uh, took uh, this puppet show, which was called Burnt Toast, Trouble in the Nation's Breadbasket, and we took it from village square to village square across the state of New Hampshire to talk about why 
nuclear power had to be stopped. And, you know, since then, we saw Three Mile Island, we saw Chernobyl, we saw Fukushima. And so these are all moments that are important and, and historic. And so it's really necessary to celebrate when we close these plants, because more often now, we're concerned that the longer these aging, decrepit, poorly designed reactors, particularly these Mark I boiling water reactors, uh, the, the greater the risk. You know, as the profit motive is lost on the nuclear industry, these are the most dangerous times. Not so much the construction, but now in this breakdown phase that we believe this aging industries in and you know the whole concept of dinosaur power you know oil is clearly dinosaur fuel but the these nuclear power plants are now more clearly dinosaurs themselves that must meet their end so this is the message that is coming out of vermont and western massachusetts and southwestern new hampshire we still have the concerns about huge amounts of nuclear waste that will be left over, no place to go, and will need to be managed by future generations who won't get one watt of benefit, but all of the liability. I'm Carol Lemon from the New England Coalition on Nuclear Pollution. And how long have you been working on uh, the Vermont Yankee shutdown? Oh, forever. <laughs> Actually, we came to Vermont. My husband and I came to Vermont in late 1970s. And then we were married in 79, and then not too long after that, he was on the board for a number of years. And then after he died three years ago, they decided that they needed another person to be on the board, so I got elected which I didn't mean to, but here I am. And I brought the display tonight for the coalition. It's thrilling that it closed. And, you know, we live within the 10-mile zone in Guilford. And, you know, I'm not sure. My husband died of a blood cancer, and it's not clear that he didn't, you know, it wasn't caused by, you know, that it was possibly caused by the radiation issues. It is thrilling to know that the plant has shut down, and we know we have a lot of work to do because they're trying to, you know, make the decommissioning go like 20 or 30 years. And how are you celebrating tonight? Well, networking, seeing a ton of people that I haven't seen forever and figuring out what we've all been doing since the last time we saw each other. There are an incredible amount of people here based on the fact that we have actively happening snow and freezing rain as the weather pattern for getting here and getting home. So there's a wonderful amount of people that have showed up, even with it terribly inclement weather. And everybody is really happy and excited and joyous and realizing and trying to figure out what are the next steps we have to do, what work do we have to do, how can we be most effective, and all that kind of stuff. Because they had, two years ago, had gotten an extension for 20 more years. I know and that. And all of a sudden in August 2014, they announced they're closing because it's not economically viable. Well, we could have told them that years ago. 
You probably tried to, and they wouldn't listen. My name is Chris Nord. I live on the seacoast of uh, southern New Hampshire, uh, where I've been for 30-some-odd years. But I became aware of uh, issues around Vermont Yankee almost 30 years ago when I discovered through a few news articles that there were people close to Vermont Yankee who lived on the New Hampshire side of the Connecticut River that were worried about the problems that they were finding with their cows. And it turned out that the, the people that were speaking out owned the farm that was the closest downwind from Vermont Yankee, even though it was across the river in another state. The uh, woman who owned that farm was named Mildred Zivna, and I had a chance to interview her, the result of which was a pamphlet that got published very widely in two different editions, 10 years apart, both to publicize the problems with nuclear power plants around Vermont Yankee, but also close to where I was working to try to stop the licensure of the Seabrook nuclear power plant. But very briefly, what they discovered at this farm was that their cows, who had always been very healthy and well cared for, started to develop all kinds of problems, a myriad of problems that had to do with birth defects, stillbirths, problems with uh, not unwillingness to feed, they would prance in their stalls because their hooves were sore. So they developed all of these anomalies that uh, made it very difficult for the uh, farm to continue. And, of course, the milk production dropped way off. And eventually, the farm had to close, even though there was never any responsibility taken by the owners of the Vermont Yankee plant. It was very clear to the people that worked on this farm and that were close to the situation that that farm was being negatively impacted by steam emission fallout coming from the plant across the river. They, they would see these cloud banks come from Vermont Yankee over the river and envelop the uh, land around their farm, and they would find these black flecks on their sheets that they had hung out to dry, and uh, then they would see within the next couple of days that the animals would start to prance on the surface of the ground because their feet were uncomfortable. So that all of that stuff got um, published in a pamphlet, as I said, uh, called Dairy Farming Downwind, uh, which was uh, sort of the beginning for me of uh, some serious organizing work that carried on for, uh, well, really up till now. This is a bookend for me because uh, I moved into the upper Connecticut River Valley where Dartmouth College is. Uh, in the very early 1970s, and just by a trick of fate, because I discovered that some new friends were traveling to a hearing, I attended the very last licensing hearing for the startup of Vermont Yankee at the end of 1972, just before it went online. So I have actually seen the beginning and the end of this plant, and I am mostly relieved that the plant is being forced to shut down at the end of its normal operating life with no further repercussions uh, than are going to be brought about by normal operation. And that's not to say that I think that nothing has happened in the local area, but, uh, you know, at least there hasn't been a calamity like there have been at other boiling water reactors like Vermont Yankee. You know, the Fukushima reactors are the same, virtually the same reactors. So, uh, but as far as my celebration goes, that's all very muted by the fact that I've been living near the Seabrook nuclear power plant and, and have been a part of 
first, the attempt to keep the plan from ever going online, but secondly, we're carrying on a continuous effort to monitor the uh, radiation levels around that plan since it went online in the early 1990s. Uh, and we are now the only reactor community anywhere in the country where there is real-time citizens' radiation monitoring being carried out. And uh, my wish is that everybody would have the kind of system that we have around Seabrook. You know, what we need to deal with next, back where I live, is attempting to keep Seabrook from getting its license extension. I will also say that the, the, the new problem that has surfaced for Seabrook in the last couple of years, which is the first in the country, is that the Seabrook plant has what's called uh, alkaline silica reaction, which is a degeneration of the concrete, including in many of the safety-related buildings at the plant. And that problem is a problem that will not get better. It will only get worse. So, you know, it's just I'm delighted for the people of the area, the, you know, uh, southern Vermont and southern New Hampshire that Vermont Yankee will close without further calamity. But, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. And there are a lot of other boiling water reactors just like Vermont Yankee that should also be closed and they should be closed right away. Well, I hope the weight of the work that is still to be done doesn't get in the way of you at least boogieing down and having oh, no, we, I, been, I, I got a little sweat going. I, we've done some dancing. Absolutely. Yep. You have to enjoy yourself along the way or it's not worth it. You know, I mean, I've been, I've been involved in this issue for 40 years now. So uh, the only reason I've been able to keep going is because I love the people that I have met along the way. I have many friends as a result of doing organizing work, and that will continue. We celebrate the victories that we can, so uh, I'm glad to be here. Sally Shaw, I live in Gale, Massachusetts, in the emergency planning zone, which we call the sacrifice zone. I've been involved in um, recent years since I moved to the area and found after we purchased our house that we were within the 10-mile evacuation zone, so we went into overdrive to do whatever we could to help shut the plant down. I worked with New England Coalition for a couple of years um, doing research and outreach to their membership. I brought to the attention of the Vermont State Legislature the fact that the Department of Health um, official who was in charge of radiation issues was trying to change the uh, state's radiation rules to bring them more in line with Entergy Vermont Yankees. and. We're trying to do that behind the scenes without public input, and I sort of blew the whistle on that and managed to get hearings to happen and testified um, against their proposed rule change, and we managed to mitigate the damage by about 50%. We still got some of what they wanted, but we felt that we had accomplished at least not giving them the 60% discount on <laughs> direct gamma that they were seeking. Um, and it's just a very happy day for us. It's one that it's almost unbelievable that they decided to pull the plug after you know, getting permission to operate for another 20 years. And we were all feeling quite deflated about that because we'd fought hard to oppose it. And the next thing we know, they um, threw in the towel. So we're very happy today. We're not going to let the hard work that we've done educating citizens in this area go to waste. So many of us are paying close attention to what's going on at Rancho Seco and Fitzpatrick and Pilgrim here in Massachusetts and other places around the country. And if there's any way we can 
help. Many of us are willing to travel, to write letters, to do whatever we have to do to help raise consciousness. So, yeah, we're not done yet, but today's a good step. My name is Tom Wyatt. I live in Warwick, Mass., nine and a half miles from the reactor within the 10-mile zone. I've been involved with uh, SAGE and the Clamshell Alliance, fighting Vermont Yankee for several years. Uh, got arrested there uh, a couple of times, though some of the times they didn't really want to arrest us. But uh, <laughs> I am very happy to be here at this celebration because people worked very hard for many years. The reactor only passed, I think, by one or two votes back in 1972, and there was strong opposition back then, and it's continued throughout its awful uh, lifespan. Living as close as I do to it, um, I've had some personal loss. My wife just passed away in about six weeks ago from cancer. Oh, I'm um, so sorry. Yeah. Um, I can't say that it's directly from the reactor, but, um, you know, it's pouring toxins into, into our environment. And um, it's all about corporate greed. People don't want it. The state didn't want it, but they were able to get the uh, approval in spite of that. And uh, I almost don't know where to begin. We have renewable sources of power, which if they put the money into, we would uh, be have a lot more of those. And we could phase out nuclear as well as fossil fuels. But it, it all comes down to money. And uh, the vested interests care more about that than they do about people's safety. I'm really glad that we persisted in spite of the opposition. If we had alternatives that were funded, we would be not having to have these choices that sacrifice our health. I'm visiting with people, dancing, um, basking in that we've got a strong community and people care. It's important to celebrate. It's not all about struggle. I think it's important when you're dealing with life and death issues to be able to remember being human and things that are fun and silly and dance and sing and all that. <laughs> I feel like I'm at the party. I feel you like are. I'm here and celebrating with you guys. Nancy Browse. I live about 14 miles from Vermont Yankee, and I've been opposed to nuclear energy since I learned about it when people were beginning to oppose the construction of the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. I've been working very hard to shut Vermont Yankee since 2008. I work with the Safe and Green Campaign, and we have every strategy in the entire book from A through Z, and we're so happy that throwing the book at these people actually worked. I mean, just everything from people's campaign in the legislature to campaigns in our local and town municipal governments to demonstrations where we were arrested to legal protests to walking from Brattleboro to Montpelier in the winter, which was 126 miles. We did it all. We did it all with great joy. I was so fortunate to work with all the people I've worked with because they're people who are really working for a safe future for our children and grandchildren and to create a better world. And 
therefore they're wonderful people, and I feel very fortunate to be partying with this crowd. That was but a handful of the activists who worked so hard for so long to help bring about the December 29 permanent closure of Vermont Yankee, which I wish to commemorate by sharing 100 nuclear reactors still on, 100 nukes still on, take one down, Vermont Yankee is gone, 99 nuclear reactors still on. Okay, who's next? Before we move on, I want to give you an update about my quest to attend Dr. Helen Caldicott's symposium on the dynamics of possible nuclear extinction being held in New York City on February 28th and March 1st of this year. My intention is to use this trip to bring all of you up close and personal with the event, not just the official speeches, but the side conversations the excitement, the networking, the international networking, and all the bad jokes about nuclear that I can discover. I want to thank the generosity of the nuclear hot seat donors who have already come forward because I've received just about enough to be able to book my plane ticket to New York. Yay! And even the one coming back as well. Now, who can help me with the housing and ground transportation? Anyone available to pick me up at the airport or put me up for a few nights? Doesn't have to be elaborate. Living room couches are a great place to crash. We can network, brainstorm, strategize, or just hang out. I promise I'm an easy keeper and there will be a lot of laughs. If you wish to support me on this journey, you can donate at NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down, and click on the big red donate button. And if you can offer other forms of assistance, email me at info at nuclearhotseat.com. Whatever you can do to help, know that I'm deeply grateful for your assistance. Just this morning, January 6, 2015, Tri-Valley Cares in California organized a vigil at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory near San Francisco. I caught up with Mary Leah Kelly, executive director of Tri-Valley Cares, a very short time after the demonstration ended, and she got back to her office. Here's her report. Mary Leah, what is the Lawrence Livermore Laboratory, and why should we be concerned about it? In the United States, there are two weapons laboratories that design, develop, and test every U.S. nuclear uh, weapon in the arsenal. One is Los Alamos Laboratory in New Mexico. The other is the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore, California, here in the San Francisco Bay Area. What kind of actions have Tri-Valley Cares been involved in in the past regarding Lawrence Livermore? Tri-Valley Cares has, for 32 years now, opposed uh, the nuclear weapons development activities at Livermore Lab. We were instrumental in researching and publicizing that Livermore Lab had failed uh, security drills. We have managed to get um, the 3,000 pounds or so of bomb-usable quantities of plutonium out of Livermore Lab. It's, you know, on earthquake faults, um, as I said, in the San Francisco Bay Area with 7 million people living within a 50-mile radius. 
but it is still a nuclear weapons design lab. Our goal is to convert it to civilian science, and they do still have small quantities of plutonium at the laboratory. So today we were at the gates of Livermore Lab vigiling to prevent a brand new plan to begin this month vaporizing plutonium in a giant laser called the National Ignition Facility at Livermore Lab, vaporizing plutonium, um, and this is planned for 120 separate experiments over the next 10 years, one every month, vaporizing plutonium with lasers in a populated area. This is a risk to the workers. This is a risk to the communities around the laboratory. And so we were there to educate the workers about what is being planned. In addition to being an environmental and health hazard, I want to make very clear that these plutonium experiments in the National Ignition Facility are completely and solely in service of the lab's nuclear weapons mission, meaning they're for nuclear weapons development purposes that has nothing to do with civilian energy. When you say we in terms of today's action. Who is the we you are talking about? Tri-Valley Cares and our friends at the Catholic Worker Farm came together uh, and did a vigil in the wee hours of this morning at 7 a.m. Um, in the still dark and cold at the gates of the laboratory. We had an educational part of the vigil, but the main purpose, we had signs, we had banners, saying no plutonium in the NIF. The main purpose, as I said, is, was to talk to the employees, to let the employees know what's going on. My group, Tri-Valley Cares, is demanding uh, that the laboratory do a thorough environmental review of the potential hazards of using plutonium in the NIF before these experiments start. And we want to uh, let the employees know so that they can do their own advocacy inside the fence line because their health is at risk to make sure that there is an environmental review before the experiments happen. So we came armed with leaflets. As we began the vigil, we were holding signs, uh, uh, posing plutonium in the NIF, waving to the employees. We got a lot of positive response, employees smiling, employees uh, waving back at us as they made the turn to go into the laboratory. There is an open area between where the employees turn off the street and the actual guard shack where they stop and show their badges. So the second part of what we had planned was to go into that area, which is an unclassified area, where the employees are slowing down and where it's safe and they can roll down their windows and take a leaflet, and the intention was to leaflet. We came with hundreds of leaflets. And the security staff and the Alameda County Sheriff came out in force and actually denied us access to the unclassified open area and uh, restricted us to the street. This is a uh, street that has a 45, 50 mile an hour speed limit on it. Uh, this is not a very uh, conducive uh, place to leaflet in terms of people rolling down their windows and being able to take your leaflet safely. You'd have to have really good aim to get in at that speed. Oh, yes. But there is an irony. I want your listeners to um, contemplate. 
in denying us access to safely leafleting the employees entering at that gate, they were forced to close down that gate so that they had to turn away all the employees trying to go to work and force them to go up to half a mile around to, to into a different gate. And in so doing, they ensured that every employee at Livermore Lab, no matter what gate they go through, will hear about the vigil and will understand why we were there, which is to tell them the hazards and the stupidity of vaporizing plutonium with lasers in the National Ignition Facility. I love it. Was there any media coverage? Was the media there at all? Yes, I'm um, happy to report that our local newspaper was there. This is the paper that uh, all of the families in the community read, so they will be able to read whatever the newspaper writes. Our uh, local Pacifica station, KPFA, covered it last night in their news broadcast. Our goal is to get the word out about this plan to vaporize plutonium in NIF. The laboratory announced the plan in December as kind of a holiday surprise, announced they plan to begin these experiments at the end of January. So as your listeners can visualize, it's a very short time frame over the holidays to mobilize people and to get the word out. And I'm very thrilled to tell you that we are having some success with that. We're getting great feedback, including from lab workers who sent me emails this morning because they recognized me and, you know, looked up Tri-Valley Care's email address and um, getting emails of support from lab workers. This is sensational. What's next? Next, Tri-Valley Cares is having a sit-down meeting tomorrow with the technical staff at the National Ignition Facility to ask them um, questions about this plan to, uh, as I said, 100, 120 times uh, at least over the next 10 years to vaporize plutonium in the NIF. So uh, we'll be able to ask technical questions at that time. We will call on them directly and clearly in person to do what we believe is the legally required environmental review under the National Environmental Policy Act. My belief, my way of organizing, uh, my way of operating, is you always give your opponent every opportunity to do the right thing. So tomorrow and today we are putting the laboratory on notice. We're giving them every opportunity to do the right thing, which is to conduct a National Environmental Policy Act compliant review of the proposal, which will then have a public comment period. The workers will be able to weigh in with their concerns. The community will be able to weigh in with its concerns. That's what we want. Tomorrow we will be carrying this message to the management in a sit-down meeting. If they don't do the right thing, and proceed with this plan to just start vaporizing plutonium at Livermore Lab, then we are investigating the potential for litigation. What can listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat do to help? Uh, listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat can go to the Tri-Valley Cares website, www.trivalleycares.org or to our um, public Facebook page to get more information. We're asking everybody to sort of talk about it, post, repost, tweet, retweet, inform their organizations, inform their communities, 
to um, pull information off the Tri-Valley Cares website, off our Facebook page, share it. Our biggest concern right now is that this is happening in the absence of public knowledge, and we believe that if we can shine the light of, 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 of openness, transparency, public knowledge on this project, we can, in fact, stop it. But it will take people talking about it, talking to their friends about it, and that will help our efforts here to get the word out and, uh, and to stop it. We wish you every success in your efforts tomorrow and beyond. Thank you very much, and thank you for having me on. It's a, it's a great podcast. That was Mary Leah Kelly, Executive Director of Tri-Valley Cares. John Stewart! I will be in New York City for Dr. Caldecott's symposium and available to meet with your people on February 26, 27, or March 2. Check your calendar, Booby, and let's schedule a time to figure out the best way for you to integrate your unique new nuclear pundit, that would be me, along with more nuclear information into The Daily Show in 2015 and beyond. Have your people call my people. Deal? Okay, I'll call you. Just email me the number. I love this week's activist shout-out. A Facebook post by Boston-based activist Dr. Sheila Parks caught my eye a short time ago. It was a call-out to Tweet the Pope. Here's Sheila to explain the what, why, and how of it. Sheila, it's interesting that you are asking for us to contact the Pope because you're not Catholic, are you? No, I'm Jewish. I'm an ardent feminist. I stand against much of what the Catholic hierarchy and the traditional positions on women, abortion rights, gay rights, right to die for many, many years. Although I disagree vehemently and ardently with almost all of the Catholic Church hierarchy, the Pope, the bishops, the priests, the cardinals, he's doing something good here, and I feel that we need to, you know, really hold his feet to the fire to make sure that he doesn't leave nuclear out. What makes this time important for us to reach out to Pope Francis? He's already against nuclear weapons, and he's written about that very strongly and eloquently. He's about to do a fantastic encyclical on climate change when he calls it immoral to degrade the climate like people are doing. He calls out coal, oil, and gas. And once again, he, like Bill McKibben, doesn't mention nuclear. He has to know about nuclear power. This pope is no joke. The previous pope and the Vatican backed nuclear power while they were in the meantime putting solar on all of the Vatican buildings. The Italian people, we the people, they did not want nuclear power. They wanted solar and wind, and they defeated the Vatican about nuclear power. The Japanese bishops have asked for no nukes in Japan, and they have written to the Pope asking him to join them and asking for absolutely no nuclear power plants ever again in Japan or anywhere else in the world. The fear is, of course, that the Pope will not include nuclear or worse come out in favor of it as regards climate change. What is the action that you are asking people to take? Tweet the Pope three times a day if you can. Keep on tweeting the Pope to take a stand against nuclear power in his encyclical against the climate crisis. Always include the hashtag that I made up. I hear he has a sense of humor. I tweeted to him, if you come out against nuclear power, we'll call you the hashtag no nukes Pope. Post on his Facebook page, just look Pope Francis. Make sure you get that one. He posts on it all the time. I've tweeted him. I've 
posted on his Facebook page, and I'm in the process of writing him a snail mail letter. When Libby finishes doing her show this week, she's going to have on her website his the Pope's address, his Twitter handle. I love that the Pope has a Twitter handle. His Facebook page link and his address for the snail mail letter because I've given her all of that. And do all of this like yesterday before he releases this encyclical. He's got to have this no nuclear power. He's going to reach more than a billion Catholics. The Catholic Church is far and wide. What is the handle that we use in tweeting to the Pope? The Pope, you do ask, T-O-N-T-I-F-E-X, Pontifex, it means bridge builder. Okay, I just want to say this is a call out not only to all Catholics everywhere, but to all people everywhere. It's an ecumenical interfaith movement that we've got to have the Pope be on our side for no nuclear power. Amen to that. And a women too. Oh, I was just going to say a women who beat me to it. <laughs> Dr. Sheila Parks. A reminder that the Twitter handle of Pope Francis is at Pontifex, at P as in Peter, O, N like Nancy, T as in Tom, I, F like Frank, E, X. If you add the hashtags No Nukes Pope and Pope Francis, we just might be able to trend this. I'll also have all the contact information up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, Number 185. Here's this week's final thought. Star Priscilla, founder of Coalition Against Nukes, you've got the most beautiful granddaughter imaginable, and everyone in our movement who's on Facebook knows it. May she grow up to live in a clean and peaceful world, the equivalent of a brand new Eden. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 6, 2015. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, Reuters, a whole slew of references on the Ukraine Zeporizhna cover-up from Peter Daly in Australia by way of listener Tolly, rt.com, Rosia de Segudnia, informable.com, and the esteemed Lucas Hickson, addictinginfo.com, koreatimes.co.kr, tas.com, nhk, japantimes.com, asahi shimbun, and the mighty nuclear hot seat Facebook community, which can be joined, friended, and you can tweet to John Stewart about us. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Nuclear Hot Seat is syndicated by ucy.tv and is also available on airprogressive.com. Our archives are available on iTunes, you can subscribe under podcasts, and you can also find us on our website by searching at NuclearHotSeat.com. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. We are copyright 2015, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed for not-for-profit groups, blogs, and websites. You have my permission to reuse as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. 
Nuclear Hot Seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat. It's the bomb.